Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves yes. have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves are champions. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley, joined by Corey McCartney right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Games. We're live tonight until 10 p.m. from the Kia Studios in Midtown. It's a big weekend for the Braves. They didn't close down on the note that they wanted to, but they picked up another series win. And As a matter of fact, it was a pretty good road trip all around for the Braves as well. We'll talk a lot about that and a lot about everything else happening across the world of baseball as we do each and every week. Before we get started, though, I want to let you know you can follow me on Twitter, on, on social in general, at Grant McCauley. You can find Corey at Corey J. McCartney. You can find the show at From the Diamond, and you can find 92.9 The Game at 92.9 The Game. Connect with us there, and of course, uh, we've got all kinds of good stuff going on, Corey. It was an interesting weekend for the Braves. They had a chance at a sweep of the Reds. They had the starter that gave them the performance they needed on Sunday, but they just weren't able to pull it off as the Reds they found themselves a rally in the late innings. They got some ridiculous starting pitching that entire series in Cincinnati. Started with Max Fried, and then obviously Spencer Strider was fantastic on Saturday. Charlie Morton threw potentially his best game of the entire season yep. on Sunday. Yep. Um, I just thought the Braves starters were fantastic that entire series uh, along the Ohio River. Yeah, it's been a lot of really good starting pitching, more times than not for the Braves. We'll talk about this as we get into this week in Braves baseball, that things have been going really well to start things out. Max Fried setting the tone for this rotation. You've got what Kyle Wright has done all year long as a stabilizing force, and then now we're seeing Charlie Morton come along. And let's start with him because Sunday was his day as the Braves were looking to sweep away the Cincinnati Reds, and Morton did everything and then some as far as giving them a chance to do it. Seven innings of one hit ball, one walk, ten strikeouts for Charlie. He's been on quite a roll of late. It's last four starts now because this is a good sample size because, you know, four or five starts per month at the very least is what you're going to see from most starters. Sometimes you'll sneak that sixth one in there, but 26 and two-thirds innings, 14 hits, five walks, 35 strikeouts for Morton. He's allowed just four runs across those last four outings. That is the Charlie Morton the Braves have been looking for, and really that's the Charlie Morton that Charlie Morton has been looking for. Our measuring stick on a Morton start is swing and misses on that curveball. Uh, that was elite on Sunday with a 53% rate on the swing on the pitch, nine whiffs. In all, he had 15 on 42 swings. His curveball really heavy in this outing, 37% clip. That's the third time in four outings he's been at least 37%, uh, 35 in each of the last five. Speaks to the success of that pitch. Batters at 200 or lower in the last five starts against mm-hmm. the curveball. So Charlie Morton is absolutely feeling it with that pitch right now. I don't know that I've seen it look any better than today from the eye test. Then you pull up the numbers and you look beyond this at how Charlie has been trying to get that pitch back and going. I mean, I've seen it you know, joked about. I've talked to people. It's like sometimes I feel like he throws his best curveball, that back foot breaking ball, but he hits the guy in the back foot. That's not the point of having a back foot breaking <laughs> ball. The point is to get a guy to swing and miss, and he was able to do a lot more of that in this start. Ten strikeouts for him, again, as he seems to be rounding into form. And you couple this together with, again, it's not just about Max Fried. We talked about him a lot last week, and we can talk about him each and every week because it seems like he's going to go out there and give the Braves another A-plus performance because that is who he is at this point. 
I think he's making a pretty good case to start the All-Star game. We'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks. It is in Los Angeles, and Tony Gonsolin's looked awful good, so that might be a nod that you give a local guy. But putting that aside, putting Kyle Wright aside, even as he has been you know, such a revelation for the Braves this year, Spencer Strider, we knew that this was a special arm. We did not know exactly how the Braves would choose to deploy Spencer Strider. They stretched him out. They looked to keep him in the position where he could get into the starting rotation, but there were several guys that got a crack at it before he did. Now he has seemed to really put his stamp on this job and really take this job and run with it and run away from just about anybody else that's trying to sneak into the Braves' rotation in that spot anyway. What have we seen from Spencer Strider the last two outings that's just whole far and away different from what he was showing early on because he just gave the Dodgers everything they could handle and he just turned around and gave, in his last start, even more so, I feel like, of just the kind of A-plus performance that maybe this is who Spencer Strider is at this point. The thing that I love that he's been doing of late, I mean, he's been doing it really the entire season, but the thing that I think it's really sticking out of late is, is the ability to command that strike zone high, the command the fastball high in the strike zone. Yep. Uh, he's the second highest put-away percentage at 25% behind Garrett Cole on that pitch. Uh, 36.2% rate is the, in the top 2% in all of MLB. Um, hit triple digits 14 times on Saturday. 102.4 mm-hmm. was his highest. I mean, I mentioned the control. and He's in the zone 43% of the time. You know what's coming. These are major league hitters that know that he primarily throws his four-seam fastball along with that slider, mixes in the changeup from time to time. You know what Spencer Strider is going to give you, and you still can't catch up with it. That's the, I mean, that's the thing. It's just, it's just such a lively pitch. Um, he has such conviction throwing it. Uh, he's just, he, he's been absolutely unbelievable. And I don't, what we got the taste of him a year ago. You saw bits of it, but just to, to me, the way he's been able to set it up with that slider and just be able to command the mm-hmm. upper part of that zone has been everything with Strider. Yeah, we talk about fastball command being something that's going to be critical to just about any pitcher. We'll talk about it with Ian Anderson here in a moment as we you know, take a real good look at what the Braves starting rotation has been doing so well and, and something that they're looking to address and, and have hopefully Ian Anderson be able to figure out. But with what Spencer Strider's done the last couple of outings against the Dodgers first and then against the Reds, 12 innings, 6 hits, a run, a walk, 18 strikeouts. We saw that little start against the Giants where the velocity for Spencer Strider was more in that 96-97 range at most, and that's where he was operating on that day. He got hit pretty hard by his standards or anybody else. There were a ton of base hits in that game, but when I heard him come out of that one and talk about how, you know, I've got to be able to pitch on days where maybe I don't have my A-plus stuff, it, it just feels like this is a kid that is learning all of the lessons along the way, and he's taking those lessons and moving him forward five days and taking him back out to the mound with him and applying what he has learned with the 80-grade fastball and what I feel like is a dynamite slider that's able to really get some swing and miss for him as well and just working in that changeup where he needs to to just kind of keep hitters honest. I love the the, the point of him just learning on the fly here, right? I mean, he really has – he goes back to the, the time in A Mississippi, and that was when he realized – I got to do something else than just try to to blow the ball past yeah. guys, and that's when he really started to to really fine tune and hone in on that slider. Um, obviously, you know, being around guys that are so different. You think about you know Max Fried is kind of that mix of what Charlie Morton can do with the secondary stuff, but can light up the radar gun a little bit like Strider can. Um, obviously, you know Ian mixes in that changeup, and then he's got another great guy who throws a curveball and Kyle Wright. He's got mm-hmm. all these little things to pick up from all those those Braves pitchers around him. And he, obviously, the arm motion with him is a little bit different. It's a little bit you know more compact. It's a little bit closer to the body on the release point. Uh, but I just think for him to continue growing like this. 
this. I mean, you're talking about a guy that, you know, became the first rookie in the modern era to have two games in which he struck out 11 or more and allowed one or less hit, a hit after he went 6-0 and with 11 strikeouts, one hit allowed on Saturday. This is... We've not seen this from a Braves pitcher, and to be able to do it no. at the age he's doing, I mean, it's just been ridiculous. And I was going to ask you, I mean, as you look back at the 10 or so years that you've been covering the Braves, and I can look back on a lifetime of just you know growing up on this team, thinking of a guy with this kind of stuff that's been in the Braves rotation, I mean, you just don't see guys come along throwing triple digits. I mean, I know you see it a lot more in today's game, but I'm hard-pressed to feel or to think of another power pitcher with his overall stuff and velocity, and this is all due respect to John Smoltz, who was the Braves power pitcher in the most you know successful time in the franchise's history, but Spencer Strider just takes it to a next level with the fastball. Think about how many guys we've seen come and fail with the ability to hit triple digits. Mauricio Cabrera is a guy that obviously could throw yeah. triple digits. Flamed out. No Flamed out. Yeah, think about another guy talking about flames. Joel Zumaya from the Tigers used to have flame tattoos mm-hmm. on his arm. He could not hit consistently the strike zone. I think that's the thing with these guys. We've seen it with Hunter Green a little bit for the Reds. He's starting to develop a secondary pitch. But how much can these guys with the high velocity rates actually control the pitch? That's the determining factor, I think, that's making Strider be so successful. Now, you put Spencer Strider's success in there. You look at what Max Fried has been doing consistently for the Braves this year. I mean, he is the guy leading this rotation. You look at what Kyle Wright has done. You get Charlie Morton rolling. Now that the Braves have four starters who seem to consistently be giving you the results that you need, I mean, is there a better time for this to have come together? I mean, sure, you'd love it to have been from opening day on, but with what the Braves have been able to accomplish as a team, I feel like the foundation of all of this was the rotation really starting to find its rhythm. And the fact that you're having so many questions with Ian Anderson, which we'll get into, I mean, that's kind of the the crazy part, right? Luckily, they've found such uh, cemented pieces with the rest of these guys. Yeah, they've really been getting the consistency they need from the front of the rotation ace, and everybody's been, uh, you know, just filing in right behind Max Fried, lining up to give the Braves some very, very good starts. We do have more to talk about when it comes to the Braves rotation, a lot more to talk about with the Braves and with baseball in general right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game from the Kia Studios in Midtown. As we go through this week in Braves baseball and got to give you an inside look at What's been going on with this club, which was pretty good on the road. Could have been better, though, Corey, I think is kind of what we take away from Sunday's game. You have a chance to take a sweep and bring that home. That kind of momentum is something the Braves have uh, certainly found a lot of since June the 1st. But on a day you get Charlie Morton throwing a great game. You also had Luis Castillo to deal with, so he was a little bit stingy. wasn't giving the Braves offense a whole lot. There were some missed opportunities early in this game. And, and then in the bullpen, you had not one but a couple of guys that just did not have the outings that they wanted to. Colin McHugh in particular got knocked around for – Three runs, four consecutive hits for the Reds to score those runs. And then A.J. Minter came in. The defense kind of let him down as well. This was just one of those days that, you know, over the course of that 162, when I say you win some games you're not supposed to, you lose some games you're not supposed to, this would go in that latter pile. It would, and, and I think it gets compounded because of the fact that you don't have Kenley Jansen, who's out with the irregular heartbeat. Yeah. On Saturday, you watch Will Smith, you know, hit by pitch, ends up loading the bases, yeah. and that was had a lot of cardiac uh, events within that uh, that outcome. And then you think about, you know, A.J. Mentor today unable to get it out as the, the Reds end up walking it off. So uh, obviously, you know, there was an issue there with Tommy Pham and, and Dansby Swanson and the you know, the knee and the rib cage and dropping the ball and all that stuff. But yeah, not a good throw from Matt Olson there either. It wasn't. But I, I think not having Kenley Jansen, it kind of sets this situation where maybe guys are, not that they can't pitch in those situations, but I think it just becomes 
all right, this is now under a magnifying glass because this is where you should have had yeah. your uh, you know guy who's in the top ten all time in saves. And it bumps everybody into yeah. different positions and different matchups. And you know, Colin McHugh has been, I think, far more good than bad. But he has had a handful of outings this year that you look at and you think, man, that's it would again go on the pile of well, you'd like to have that game back because you know you're just not able to have it every time out there. And I feel like a lot of the response overall that I've seen, at least online, which is not necessarily an accurate representation of how real life works, but you know, <laughs> Colin McHugh may not have been the reliever that he was with the Rays last year to this point. But he also has not been as bad as it would seem after the worst of his outings. And this was just one of those days where he quite simply didn't have it. And the Reds, maybe more to the point, had his number. These are professional hitters. I mean, you've got Joey Votto in this lineup. You've got Jonathan India, who was a rookie of the year. I mean, they're, this is a bad team, but there are still some hitters you got to worry about navigating within that Reds lineup. And um, no, he's not been as you know effective as, as he was a year ago. I mean, the ERA is more almost double you know, what it was uh, a year ago when he was in Tampa Bay. Um, you know, all of the hard hit rates, all that stuff that we look at on StatCast is all elevated from a year ago. Yeah. Uh, but this is still a guy who can log a bunch of innings. I mean, through 64 a year ago, he's already halfway there uh, this season. So I, I still think he's going to matter as you head down the stretch, especially, you know, whatever happens with Mike Soroka, if, what you're going to have to do in trying to, to back somebody up on him on a start, whatever, you know, they decide to do with him. Colin McHugh is going to factor in as things continue. So going to have to kind of go through those little ruts here while he try to gets himself back into that mode that he was with in Tampa Bay. Yeah, and everybody's going to have these forgettable yep. games, whether you're a starting pitcher, whether you're a reliever, whether you're a hitter, whether it's in the field. I mean, these are the kind of things that are going to happen. The Braves just kind of got a little of all of that late in this game, and you just felt like on a day that Charlie Morton pitches so well, it's a shame to lose a game like that. But the Braves did take two out of three from the Reds. I want to talk a little bit more about the bullpen in a moment, but I want to finish up what we were talking about with the starting rotation, because for everything that's going right, which would be Max Fried, which would be Kyle Wright, which would be Spencer Strider, which would now be Charlie Morton, Things are not going well for Ian Anderson, who has been such a critical piece of the Braves rotation over the past couple of years and was expected to be a big contributor this year and still expected to be a contributor this year for that matter. But if you track it back to May 22nd for Ian Anderson, he came into that day with an ERA under four and looking like he might be starting to kind of figure things out after a little bit of a wonky first month. But in the starts he's made since then, his last eight starts, at an ERA approaching seven. He's thrown 40 and a third innings, allowed 49 hits, and walked 19 other batters. He's got 41 punch outs. He's also allowed half a dozen home runs, which if you know anything about Ian Anderson, the type of pitcher he was, particularly in the minors and coming up, he does not allow a lot of home runs. That's just kind of the style in which he pitches. And he has just not had, I feel like, the ability to replicate the success that we saw in the Cup start a couple of, uh, a couple of starts ago. These last two starts against the Dodgers and this one against the, the Phillies last time out was the worst of his big league career, shortest, and the most runs he's allowed with seven of those in two innings. It kind of has you starting to wonder now as you look all the way back over the last basically month and a half, how much longer and how many more opportunities can the Braves give to Ian Anderson in this spot, particularly when you've got somebody at the minor league level like Kyle Muller who is performing so well that might make sense. I look at all the way back with April with him. He's figured one thing out, and then something else becomes the issue. Back in April, you know, guys were hitting 308 against his curveball. So the next month, the changeup, that pitch that's always been the defining one for him, fails him. Guys are hitting 324 against that. And then last month, he's got over 300 uh, against the curveball again. Now this month, uh, just completed 481 against his four seam. It's like he can't get everything in line at yep. once. And I think that seemed to be the biggest issue with him right now is Obviously, if he can't throw that four seam with any issue, he's not going to be that that changeup's dead. That's a problem, right? I mean, that's I, a problem. That's the, that's the issue with him. And we've talked before, you and I, about 
him and this inability to replicate what he's done in the postseason during the regular season. I mean, I'm sure Braves fans would gladly take turn the switch in October and Mm -hmm. you get vintage Ian Anderson again. But um, what you're seeing, and I think it's interesting that you mentioned that, is how long can they go with him trying to trying to figure things out to the point? I mean, I. I don't want to say it would be demoralizing for him to kind of get a couple stars down in Gwinnett if things, you know, feel like, you know, they're just off the rails a little bit here. But mm-hmm. we've seen, obviously, Kyle Wright, you know, it, it really impacted him. We've seen so many guys be able to kind of get their footing when the, the pressure's off a little bit. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's time to think about something along those lines. Well, I mean, there's always the consideration of something like that. And we have seen Braves starting pitching prospects go up and down, up and down. And Kyle Wright's a perfect example of that. You know, the amount of times that he was, you know, brought up would start for a couple of uh, you know, a couple of games or maybe even start for a month in the case of 2020 and seem like maybe he's going to be a major player for him. Then in 2021, it was a non-factor in the regular season, pitched great in the postseason and in the World Series, and now all of a sudden in 2022, it's the year of Kyle Wright. He's looked great. Uh, you know, Ian Anderson has not been optioned back down since he was brought up in 2020 when the Braves rotation was in complete disarray. That was around the time that you'd already lost Mike Soroka. You were bringing in, who's it, uh, Robbie Eflin? Is that right? <laughs> yes. uh, or Robbie Erland. That's there, who it was. There you go. You know Erlen. he's a great player yeah. if I can't remember well, yeah, his name. There you go. So uh, one of the things that you look at was they were throwing everything against the wall trying to get something to stick. And Ian Anderson in 2020, not only did he stick, but he had just a great run of success in half a dozen starts and showed up in the postseason for the Braves. And, you know, we've talked about, hey, he's the first Braves starting pitcher to do X, Y, or Z since Steve Avery in 1991 or 1992. And if you know anything about the Steve Avery postseason runs of 91 and 92, those things were the stuff of legend. And Ian Anderson was kind of tapping into that with some of the numbers he was putting up. I mean, he's not throwing eight scoreless innings every time out, but he's given the Braves more than enough in the postseason to win. And that's just not happening every fifth day right now for a variety of reasons and inconsistency being the biggest one. You just you know underscored all of that. If guys are hitting nearly 500 against your fastball, that's bad news because in the big leagues, you got to throw a lot of fastballs in order for your other pitches to be you know, what you need him to be. And the one thing I've noticed with him on the changeup in particular, it feels like he's not able to consistently throw it for strikes. It's a great chase pitch. It's great to put away hitters with, but if you're not able to consistently throw that pitch, at least at the bottom of the zone, you know, dot that eye on the outside corner perhaps with it and really carve people up, that I feel like becomes a problem as well because it kind of neutralizes that weapon if you can't get guys to chase. Without question, and I do wonder if he hadn't had the postseason success, would we even be questioning whether or not you'd think about sending him to Gwinnett to have that, you know, kind of reset? Yeah. But obviously, the what he's accomplished in October kind of has changed what you, the perception of him because he's obviously earned it on the, the highest level. But you wonder would that would they have a little bit quicker reaction yeah. to him not performing well had he not had that postseason success? And I feel like it's worth throwing out there that just because you get sent to the minor leagues does not mean it's all over. No, no, no. And, and that's the end of it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be demoralizing. Now, is it news that you want to hear? Absolutely not. But you can either take it as a setback or you can take it as a challenge. And you can take it as the opportunity to go and do the work. Kyle Wright's an example of somebody who went down there and did the work. And that's just a recent one. There's a lot of others. I mean, the hitters that have come up and not done well. Got sent back to the minor league. It happened to Mike Trout, for crying out loud. He was 20 years old, but he got brought up and sent back down. Same thing happened to Derek Jeter. I mean, there's a lot of different guys. Some of them who will be in the Hall of Fame. Some of them they'll have to buy a ticket for the Hall of Fame, just like you or me. But, you know, when you look at what has happened in AAA Gwinnett at the same time, concurrently with this, Kyle Muller, these numbers since June the 2nd, ERA just over two and half a dozen starts, 39 innings of work, only 24 hits, just nine walks, 46 strikeouts. I mean, this kid has been rolling right along. 
as far as days are concerned, the Braves don't have any days off until the All-Star break. So you'd have to kind of figure out when you could slide Kyle Muller into the rotation if you did decide to make this move. They don't throw on the exact same day, so you'd have to kind of time it out. Ian Anderson is listed as a starter on Tuesday against St. Louis, but who knows? I mean, I'm not saying this will happen on Tuesday. In fact, it can't because Kyle Muller threw yesterday, but I'm interested to see how many more starts, how long the leash is, if the results continue to be not the best that you wouldn't consider making this move and giving your club a chance to plug a piece in that might just be able to give you a little bit more every fifth day. We have seen Kyle Muller be successful at the major league level. I mean, go back a year ago, you know, he had made uh, seven starts across in eight appearances as an all and had a 288 ERA. Yep. We've seen, and obviously it, it came, the, the wheels came off in a late August start for him against the Reds, but, but we've seen him have success. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised that not only, I mean, yeah, that was a bad start, but then it was kind of like that was it. Yeah. And, and then it was you weird, really didn't right? get back around to him. And the Braves have been searching for answers in the fifth spot, particularly with the injury to Mike Soroka, you know, making it so that you always feel like you're searching for one more pitcher. Hey, Mike Soroka is down in Florida working his way back. So, you know, he has a chance to be a contributor at some point in the second half as well. I don't think you can necessarily bet the farm on it, but the chances are pretty good that Mike Soroka is going to be available to you. And that is something that could be a big boost for the Braves' rotation. And speaking of boosts for the Braves, I don't know that there's been a bigger one than Michael Harris II because another home run on Sunday, a big one to help tie the game up. Obviously, the Braves lost against the Reds. That's unfortunate. But in the month of June, this guy put up a 956 OPS, hit nearly 350, 35 hits, four homers, 16 runs batted in, 18 more runs scored, four stolen bases, all in all 13 extra base hits. And oh, by the way, that elite-level defense. That's how you win National League Rookie of the Month, and that's what Michael Harris has done. And it's been far and away, above and beyond anything you could have asked for, for a guy jumping from double-A to the big leagues just to try to give you some consistent play in center field. All right, so let's talk about the defense a little bit. Five outs above average right now. Have him in the top 23 in a game, right? But he's tied for the MLB lead in four-star catches. He's six for six there. Those are ones that are 26 to 50% catch probability. So you're talking about a guy who arrived May 28th and he's tied for the MLB lead in four-star catches. I mean, this defense from him, um, it's it's just insane. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, you mentioned it there. Uh, June Rookie of the Month, you, you compile enough of those, and they end up giving you Rookie of the Year. So, I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's, <laughs> he's just been. Uh, I, I don't know that we we uh, obviously the ultra talented guy, right? And, and you you knew he was going to be able to make an impact, but I just didn't. I never thought he would be the stabilizing force. You think about a year ago, mm-hmm. the stabilizing force was going out and remaking that outfield. This year, it really feels like the stabilizing force for this Braves team is two rookies that you brought in, one to be part of the rotation mm-hmm. and one to man things for you in center field. It really is. So when you think about, you know, and it, there are other rookies for other teams that are going to put up some numbers this year and garner consideration, but the Braves have two really good candidates for Rookie of the Year in Michael Harris II and, of course, in Spencer Strider, who we've talked about as well. Other big Braves news from this week, Ronald Acuna Jr. back in the Braves lineup, looking pretty good in Cincinnati, finding his way on base, stealing some bases, doing some Ronald Acuna Jr. type things. He was also the top vote-getter in the National League, which has assured him a spot to start the All-Star game out in Los Angeles a little bit later this month. But the Braves, I feel like, have quite a few more All-Star hopefuls. We've mentioned quite a few of them already in this show. Max Fried, Kyle Wright, but I think you could throw in Travis Darnot and William Contreras, who have very strong voting possibilities mm-hmm. here. Dansby Swanson, quite obviously. I mean, he has been, I think, the Braves' MVP for this season. And then perhaps Austin Riley, who's coming on. Big series against Cincinnati, in line for a 40-home run season. I mean, of all those guys 
Who do you think has the strongest case of guys not named Dansby Swanson or Max Fried? Well, Ozzie Albies is probably going to be named an all-star, and he's going to be able to probably wave at everybody in L.A. Even though well, he's, he's hurt, and Jazz Chisholm is now hurt but, as yeah, well. So yep. the top two vote-getters in the National League at second base. Right yeah, now. I like William Contreras' chances, obviously, because Bryce Harper, the leading vote-getter there at designated hitter, uh, is out of the equation right now after undergoing thumb surgery. Um, I, I think I think Contreras is going to get in. Obviously, I think you mentioned Swanson. I don't think Adam Duvall is going to make the cut in the outfield, but I think you could easily see Max Free being in the mix. I think A.J. Minter, Kyle Wright. I think you're, I mean, they have not had more than four All-Stars since 2011. I think it's, they, they could potentially get up to six, I think, if you really start yeah. piecing this thing together. Yeah, I would say of the guys that I think are definite to join Ronald Acuna Jr. there, Dansby Swanson and Max Free. I feel like Kyle Wright certainly should. And then you've got the case for William Contreras just via the DH to kind of, you know, get come in through the, the side door, if you will, yep. and grab himself a spot. And then Travis Darno, Austin Riley have good all-star cases. So it could be a very Braves-centric all-star game here in a couple of weeks out in Los Angeles. That's what's going on this week in Braves baseball. We'll talk more about the Atlanta Braves as we continue along here on From the Diamond. But when we come back, we'll talk about our three up and three down, six of the biggest stories from Major League Baseball and the week that was. And it comes your way next. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney, From the Diamond, Sports Radio, 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio, 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond, Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios in Midtown. We appreciate you joining us. We've been talking a lot about what's been going on this week in Braves baseball. If you like what you've heard on the show thus far, well, well, please be sure to tell a friend. We appreciate that, but you can also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find the show on the Odyssey app as well. You can follow us on social media. I'm at Grant McCauley. He is Corey J. McCartney. Let's get into three up and three down, Corey. We like to do this so we can take a look kind of around the league. And, of course, we'll size up all the divisional races and do all that good stuff and then put a nice bow on the show by talking about the week to come for the Atlanta Braves. But there has been some news. There's been some stuff going on in baseball, some stuff that uh, I don't know that I saw coming this week, and we'll lead off with this. Buster Olney of ESPN casually dropped Jacob deGrom to the Braves as the heavy rumor for this winter And that's exactly what happened on Saturday when Olney threw this tweet out there. I'll read it verbatim. There is perception in some corners of the industry that if Jacob deGrom follows through with what he said in the spring and he opts out of his Mets contract, the Braves will be the favorite to land him. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. A, it's Jacob deGrom. If he's healthy, he's the best pitcher in baseball. But kind of B, when is he going to be healthy? A little update on that. Started his rehab assignment today, punched out five guys, and hit 100 miles an hour, so I guess he's feeling himself, which is good. Uh, where do you land on this? Because Jacob deGrom is going to be a very sought-after piece and should be a commodity for a number of different clubs, but what could he command per season? We're talking $30-plus million a year, no? Yeah, from my corner of the industry, uh, Spotrac has a market value of three years and 108 108- Point one million for him. That's I a sold him short. That's, that's a thirty-six million average annual value on that. The Braves have never spent more on a single season contract than the twenty-two million they gave Freddie Freeman last season. Do you really see them going fourteen million over that annually? Even if you're going to get a guy who looks like he might end up in Cooperstown. 
Jacob deGrom has been a late bloomer as well in his career when you think about it. You look at the age right now. He just turned 34 years old. He really didn't establish himself at the big league level until he was in his mid to late 20s. And then going supernova, of course, becoming basically the Captain Marvel of his starting pitchers. I mean, the things he was doing as he got older to get better and better and better and better, that's just not the way it works, not the way it's supposed to work. Um, so I don't know which of the Infinity Stones he's drawn his power from these days. But either way, somebody somewhere is going to look to have Jacob deGrom fronting their rotation. The New York Mets would very much like it to be them. They do have him under contract, but he does have that opt-out. And that is kind of what triggered this discussion. But I am fascinated to know how on the 1st of July or whatever it is that, you know, Jacob deGrom is rumored to the Braves. I mean, that's a very interesting conversation going on in the corner of somebody's industry Rolodex. He's a, from Deland, Florida, right? He said he grew up a Braves fan. He said that last Who winter. Who didn't at this point? Who did not grow up a Braves fan? If, if you live, I mean, I remember Gerald Laird, you know, from Arizona, said right. I grew up a Braves fan. Well, you TBS know, is yeah, a real. I, that's deal. true. It was. It was the. That was it, right? I mean, all these guys had that to go. They come home from school and they watch the games and all that stuff. The guys on the West Coast. Okay, it, it, I, I just don't see them going to that dollar for him, and especially with a guy, it seems so anti-Alex Anthopoulos to take a guy who's, you know, he, yes, he threw 200 innings uh, three consecutive seasons. That was three years ago. I just yeah. don't, you know, there's so many question marks with Jacob deGrom, which is to me why you don't go that high on that AAV. You can't ding him about 2020 only making no, the 12 yeah, starts because correct. of the 60-game yeah. season. So I'm, I'm even willing to go all the way through 2020 that this was a healthy and dominant starting pitcher, the best starting pitcher for my money or anybody else's because I can't afford him. But for my money or anybody else's, this was the guy who sets the bar in Major League Baseball and was doing so for about a five-year run at that point. It went for Clayton Kershaw, Pass that torch right along mm-hmm. to Jacob deGrom is the way I look at it. And that's I'm talking about the National League in particular. This past season with the Mets, he made 15 starts. He was 7-2, and two, absolutely dominant in those, what, 15 starts. But then you haven't seen him pitch since the midway portion of last year. So we're talking about a year off, essentially, at this point for deGrom, who is dealing with a shoulder ailment that has kept him off of the mound thus far until this rehab assignment just began. I don't want to spend our whole segment on this, but I just am, am fascinated by the idea of it, but I don't know, to side with you, if monetarily it makes a ton of sense. But I will say this. I have gotten, I have heard, I have had the conversations of some indication that the Braves are very well aware of having moved themselves into the top ten in payroll in Major League Baseball. Could they take that next step and move themselves into, say, the top five? They're not going to outspend the Dodgers. They're probably not going to outspend a couple of other clubs that will go out there and, and really maybe throw the money around it to a degree that the Braves may never. But if they get into the top five, this is the kind of move that you could conceivably see as something that they could consider doing. But then you think about, you want to extend Max Fried? Mm-hmm. You want to re-sign Dansby Swanson? Now the Braves have a ton of money coming off the books this season as well, or this, this coming winter. So there's a lot of things, and we can save the hot stove for the hot stove, but we got a big head start on it. Thanks to Buster Olney and this Jacob DeGrom no rumor. Now, here's something cool. Uh, Max Scherzer is a Mets teammate of DeGrom, doing more than just pitching on this recent rehab assignment. He was also playing the part of Santa Claus to some of the younger guys. While pitching for the AA Rumble Ponies, which is an awesome name, Scherzer bought the entire team AirPods and paid for a huge postgame spread that included lobster and filet mignon. I have ridden the buses in minor league baseball. I did not play, <laughs> but I was the recipient of several spreads that were bought by major league players who were down there on rehab. And let me just tell you, I thoroughly appreciated each and every one of those meals, and I'm sure every guy did as well. And it is a tradition for big leaguers on a rehab assignment to do that, but Scherzer took it to the next level. The AirPods, obviously, hey, that's that's really nice. And 
that does not always happen, but he took it to the max on the bill for dinner. Did you see how much he ran up this bill for? $7,000. A $7,000 dinner. And I mean, like these athletes can put it away. Don't get me wrong. They're going to eat some food. But that is a serious meal. While we've been talking, I've managed to DM Max Scherzer my Venmo information. So I'm expecting, you know, if he's got it, if he's a you know, $43 million AV, we're talking about, you know, what uh, what DeGrom could command. Mm-hmm. Scherzer's making $43 million average annual value. So $130 million contract. I, I, I love that he did this. Yeah. Duke can afford it. He can't afford it. We're going to talk a little bit more about things he can afford as we go along here, but just a, a really cool moment there, I'm sure, for all those minor league guys to be treated in such a fashion because that minor league thing is a real-life yep. grind, and a lot of people are trying to just make ends meet. So a nice meal and a nice gift from somebody just in for a couple of days, I think that goes a long way. Now here is something, a superb stat, and I'm all for quirky, never-before-seen, or when's the last time you saw a kind of stats. This one comes from uh, Stats by Stats on Twitter. If you don't follow them, you definitely should. There have now been five cycles in Major League Baseball in the last 52 days. This was as of July 1st. Christian Yelich, Eduardo Escobar, Jared Walsh, uh, Austin Hayes, and Nolan Arenado, who did it for the Cardinals. That's the shortest span for five cycles since there were five in 26 days from July 18th to August 12th, 1890. So that was before the war, before like the last six or seven wars, uh, before the Spanish-American War is when that went on. Um, and this is the first time in MLB history there were five cycles before July 4th in a season. I love quirky stats. Why don't you throw me one of yours? All right, so Arenado, the next night after getting that cycle, he had the first of four straight Cardinal homers in the first inning, wow. followed by Nolan Gorman, Juan Yepes, and Dylan Carlson. The first time it's ever happened in the first inning of a game in MLB history. Four consecutive homers to start the game. In the fourth, in the first inning, yep. Unbelievable. Yep. Now, kind of piggybacking on the cycle. You know, Eddie Rosario hit for the cycle for the Braves last year, so did Freddie Friedman for that matter. Pretty cool to see multiple times that that happened in one year for the Braves, but Rosario took the first pitch he saw in that game against the Giants. He then hit for the cycle on the next four pitches. That is something that I don't know that we'll ever see. Just think about if he'd been able to do it without taking a pitch. If he just hit for the cycle on four consecutive pitches, and then he continued to use that bat all the way through the postseason, which I thought was pretty cool as well, but a lot of cool and quirky stats in this game, and it's a, a game that and one of the things that makes you love the game so much, and that brings me to my next point, because Commissioner Rob Manfred gave a very interesting interview to ESPN this week that was entitled, Rob Manfred Wants You to Know He Doesn't Hate Baseball, He Wants to Save It. This piece is from Don Van, Don Van Nata and uh, discussed everything from robot umpires coming in 2024 to ending the broadcast blackouts. And this has been a truly trying time for the commissioner, of course, particularly the toll the recent lockout took on his public image. But if he can find a way to address things that fans are actually asking for, he could very well find his way perhaps to rehab his image a little bit and accomplish the goal of, I don't know if saving baseball is necessary, but certainly improving it. Everybody who is the great villain doesn't think they're the villain. Eric Killmonger didn't think he was a villain. General Zod didn't think he was a villain. All these people, Thanos, Thanos didn't think he was a villain. All these people who are really good villains don't think that they are the bad guy in the yep. story. I, I will say that. I mean, I, I did like some stuff that Manfred said in this story. The number one thing, if you're, and this should be something that all baseball fans should be applauding, he wants a top priority for MLB to phase out blackouts. Yes. That is an absolute game changer. And you think about the MLS and what they just did in this new ESPN streaming deal. Fans have access to every game no matter where they live. 
Uh, I think that is the biggest thing that could be working. You know, rights deals are going to come up. Major League Baseball is going to work to get those uh, blackouts that, that that you know drive regional sports networks off the papers. I think that is the biggest thing. Um, he's willing to listen on Pete Rose amid the the reality that MLB is in bed with sports books now. Um, I'm not huge on the, the automated strike zone. I know he talked about a couple different uh, variations of how that could be accomplished. Obviously, the pitch clock expansion. I'm not crazy about expansion. That's going to happen, though. It is. It, but I, the, the blackout thing to me is what could really draw in younger viewers mm-hmm. and make just baseball accessible, which yes. is the biggest thing. That is absolutely. You can put all these other things in the in the mix, and you can get to them eventually. But if you could figure out a way to consistently get your product in, in front of as many people as possible, get as many eyeballs on it as you can, why would you not want to do that? Well, the answer is big cable company deals. Mm-hmm. They didn't really want to do that. They wanted the exclusivity. That's what they paid for, and baseball took the money for the exclusivity, and it's created just this weird chasm between fans just trying to watch the team they care about and, of course, the teams trying to max out, and the league trying to max out as much money as it can out of its product. But if they can find a way to kind of bridge that gap and make some improvements there, I think a lot of fans would certainly appreciate that. They may not want to, you know, elect Rob Manfred to serve as commissioner for the rest of his life or as president or any of these other things or any other fictitious office that might come up, but it might be a chance to maybe move a little back in a little bit more back into the good graces. Now, speaking of interesting things that happened this past week, if you know anything about July 1st, you know it's Bobby Bonilla Day, and every year since 2011 and going on into 2035, the Mets cut Bonilla a check for just under $1.2 million. And most folks know the background of this. It's deferred money that the Mets were trying to get out of, and you know there was a lot of different reasons for that that we won't really get into. But Bonilla is not the only player that has got this kind of deal, and perhaps the biggest example of that is our friend Max Scherzer we just talked about. He's going to be getting $15 million per year from the Nationals from this season to 2028 because when he signed his $200-plus million contract with them, he deferred a giant chunk of it so that the Nationals could spend that money in the short term on other players and other pursuits. But now, as they say, the bill comes due, and it's coming <laughs> due on Max Scherzer. But I found this incredible thread on Twitter that listed dozens and dozens of players. And not all these guys are superstars either, and many of them, you just kind of look at it and think, how is this guy getting deferred money and or why? And if you're that player or that agent or whoever, maybe you're just really excited that you were able to work this thing into the deal if you didn't need all the money up front. And who does need all that money up front? I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it's 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 important to note then that the, Bobby O'Neill wasn't a superstar when he ended up redoing this deal with the Mets anyway. And the whole point was that the Mets were going to take the money that they were deferring Invest it with one Bernie Madoff, who obviously the whole Ponzi scheme, we know what happened to him later on. They thought that they were going to get more money by deferring it, that they would actually owe uh, Bobby Bonilla. And, of course, that fell apart when Madoff was found out to be a fraud. But uh, Bonilla is <laughs> still making bank each and every year. Yep, he really is, and he's not the only one. I found another one. Michael Mayer, and I'm going to retweet this on Twitter, but he is uh, executive editor of Metsmerized. And clearly, if you're a Mets fan or anybody that covers the Mets, you hear all about Bobby Bonilla Day way more than you ever want to. But he went through some of the examples, and they were just breathtaking, including the Braves and Bruce Suter. Also, Mm -hmm. Chris Sale is going to be getting a huge chunk of money from the Red Sox starting in 2035. I don't think he's going to be a contributor to whatever the Red Sox are doing at that point, but a lot of deferred money in that case as well. We'll close out with this. An update from last week. The Angels and Mariners, you remember that brawl that ended up with a whole bunch of guys and a whole bunch of fists flying and a lot of interesting comments coming out of it. Well, there were 12 suspensions that came out of this. It also cost Archie Bradley more than anybody because as he was going over the top of the dugout to get out onto the field in the initial you know rush out there when both the dugouts were emptying, he tripped over the top railing, fell on his arm, broke his elbow. 
So he will not be pitching again this year. You look at some of the biggest fines that were given out. Phil Nevin, manager of the Angels, uh, he was kind of an instigator in all of this and didn't really seem to feel too bad about it in the aftermath. He got 10 games. Jesse Winker, who also had some regrettable actions that he did apologize for later, including flipping off the fans, he got seven games. A bunch of guys got five, a few three, and a couple two and one game as well. But that's one of the more crazy and memorable scenes that I've seen in a not-so-great way at a Major League Baseball game. Two crazy things about this. You literally had insult after injury and insult to injury because you had Anthony Rendon, who gets suspended for five games. He's out for the season, yep. and now he's not allowed to sit on the bench for seven games of the He'll Angels. He'll cost him and, some money, too. Yeah, and he's going to have to you know, come back 2023. He's going to have to serve that five-game suspension. And then you mentioned Archie Bradley. So um, just the, the, this brawl is just the gift that keeps on giving. It was a completely and totally bizarre scene, and thankfully, after a while, I guess, cooler heads prevail, but... I will never, ever forget that box of sunflower seeds and Rysel Iglesias <laughs> just, uh, I believe the kids are calling it, yeeting it That's right. way out onto the field. And guys were trying to pick all that stuff up. It was quite something. Uh, we have yeeted the first hour of From the Diamond. We're going to reload and bring you another one as we talk about what's happening in all the divisional races across Major League Baseball as we go around the big leagues. I'm Grant McCauley. He's Corey McCartney, Garrett Chapman, keeping us on the rails here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And welcome back to the show. From the Diamond, Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Hope you're having a great Independence Day weekend. We thank you for making us a part of it. And if you'd like to make us a part of your Braves and Baseball regimen in the podcast world, you can do that. Find From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast and on the Odyssey app. And now, Corey it is time to go around the big leagues, and we begin with the National League East, which, of course, is the place that we spend a lot of our time focusing here in Atlanta, and it's gotten a whole lot more interesting in the last 34 days or so because the Braves have closed the gap down. On Saturday, they got it all the way down to two and a half games, but Atlanta, of course, lost to Cincinnati in disappointing fashion on Sunday. The Mets were able to eke out a win over the Texas Rangers, who they had some trouble with over the weekend, and now it's a three-and-a-half game lead for the Mets. They're 49-30, and Braves 46-34. and this it just seems to be a pennant race, a divisional race that is heating up and will continue to. The Phillies did not have a lot of fun against the Braves losing a series there, but they are still at and around 500. I don't think they're really going to enter into this, but the Braves and Mets, I've got my eyes on this series that they're going to be playing a week from Monday on the 11th, three games between these two clubs. And if we're talking about this kind of race, that could very well swing the division back and forth or give the Mets the lead and the pad that they've been looking for that they may have reported lost and found in the month of June. <laughs> well, the big thing with the Mets is that they were able to hold ground until their rotation was getting back to full strength. Max Scherzer's coming back on Tuesday. He's making a start against the Reds. Jacob deGrom began a rehab assignment Sunday. Uh, there's a the chance that he could be back uh, by the end of July, if not shortly after the All-Star break. Chris Bassett was on the I.L. scratch from a July uh, First start with COVID IL, um, July 11th through 13th. That's what you've got penciled. You're probably not going to see Scherzer then, though, because the timing of it, he won't pitch it if he's on a normal five-day run. Uh, but obviously, they're going to be that much more to full strength. I think the thing we've not given a lot of talk to about the Mets 
is that bullpen. I, I know they're middling in a lot of the stats. Edwin Diaz is coming off of a month in which he was reliever of the month in the yeah. National League. Um, this rotation has the chance to be deadly. You're talking about uh, you know, just some, the struggles that Diaz had early on. In uh, his first season in New York, he had a 5.59 ERA, was a zero-war player. He's been on an upward trajectory since. He has his best ERA, 201, since his final season in Seattle. He's top five in saves. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the, the bullpen, to quote MJF, has been mid, around 13 to 15 in most categories. Mm-hmm. But if that ro- rotation gets to what we think it could be with that front end of it and Scherzer and Negrom, and you've got this guy on the back end, man, this this is going to be a ridiculous race. Yeah, I mean, they'll hope to be able to say that we're better than you, and you know That's it, but right. you're going to have to prove it over the course of an entire season. The Mets have not been able to do that as of yet, but I have said, you have said, and I think everybody realizes this club is built a little bit different than last year. It will not save them from perhaps going through the kind of month of June in which they played about 500 baseball and the Braves played well above 500 baseball, what, 15 games over 500 in the month and half a game behind the Yankees for the best record in all of baseball in June. That's how much ground the Braves were able to make up. Seven games from June the 1st until as we sit here recording this show on July the 3rd. That's a pretty good run in one month to get yourself back into a divisional race. And by the way, the Braves have also pushed themselves into and and around the top wild card spot at this point as well with the San Diego Padres, who were having all that they could handle with the Dodgers, were able to avoid a sweep over the weekend. But the Padres and the Braves now are the top two wild card teams in the National League. And that, as we approach the All-Star break, is a race that we're going to be monitoring as well because when you think about what the wild card means now, it is expanded playoffs. What is this going to do as clubs really size themselves up to say, do we have a realistic shot? Are we going to be buyers or sellers at the trade deadline, which is now less than a month away? There's a lot of things coming right around the corner for the Braves and for all 29 other clubs as they seek to find out exactly who they are and what they are and what they need, most importantly. When we think within the division here of the Phillies, I, this is a team that I think you, it just has so much intrigue around it because obviously Bryce Harper's out for eight weeks now after undergoing surgery to repair that broken thumb. They need guys to step up. Kyle Schwarber was a June player of the month in the NL, and it, it might be tempting to kind of drop him from that leadoff spot to number three. You know, Reese Hoskins has been, you know, maybe the little bit better, you know, than I think he anybody anticipated with Bryce Harper not in the cleanup spot. Gene Segura's out as well. Um, this has just been a ridiculous surge from uh, from Schwarber. Uh, obviously, you know, with, with Harper out, he, he mm-hmm. picked up the slack this last month. We saw him do this before, right? Think about last June when he, he was He loves this I month, mean, he, or that he, month. He, he hit 83% above league average last June, then suffered a hamstring injury on July 3rd of the season, missed more than six weeks. He's not put together three straight months of above league average production since 2018 when he was with the Cubs. Can he carry this team for that long until Bryce Harper gets back? I don't know that any one player is going to be able to do it. It's going to be the sum of the parts for the Phillies without Bryce Harper, who and there's no guarantee that he's going to be back either. I mean, I think he'll probably do everything he can to push himself back in there, but he's still dealing with the UCL thing. So when he does come back, it's going to be as a DH, which was already the case before he went out, which means that you have in Cal Schwarber, another not-so-great guy out in the field on a regular basis, and he's not the only one in that club, not to just point him out in particular. And then you look at the Phillies, and if they're buying anything in order to make a run at the division or the wild card more specifically – they're going to continue to have to answer the question of how do we fix our bullpen because they ask the question, it seems like, every winter, and then they ask it pretty much every night, all season long, and they just don't have a lot of fun and a lot of success with the things that they've tried to do with it. But as you look over in the Central, it's a pretty good race. It's heated up here. We're going to see the St. Louis Cardinals rolling into Truist Park to face the Braves in a four-game series that begins on the 4th of July. 
The Milwaukee Brewers, though, have been able to find a little something in the last week and a half and push themselves back to the top of the pile there. Nobody else is even within shouting distance of those two teams. So as you look at what the Braves have going on here in, in their race against the Mets, again, it was two and a half games on Saturday. You really wish you could still say it was two and a half games here on Sunday, but that didn't work out for you. But you are very close, as close as you can hopefully keep it until you have a head-to-head battle with the Mets. But St. Louis Cardinals find themselves in the same place. They are chasing down the Milwaukee Brewers. They've very nearly caught them. They've even passed them at times. But this is a pivotal four-game series between the Braves and the Cardinals. And you're looking at a Brewers team that you know has, has really dealt with a lot of weird injuries, right? Like Aaron Ashby uh, just came back from the 15-day DL with forearm uh, fatigue. They still don't have Adrian Hauser, who's expected back in July, right? Flexor strain. Uh, Corbin Burns, though, has just been so good of yep. late. He has a 2-4-5 ERA in his last eight starts, going back to that May 18th. Uh, outing against the Braves when they got to him for a season-high five runs. Christian Yelich, by the way, we've been waiting for some sign of whether or not this guy was ever going to look like the MVP-level Yelich again. In the, He's kind of moved into that leadoff spot and kind of found something within himself. Uh, he hit his first home run since June 16th on Saturday, reached base twice. He's hitting 256, 349, 396 as the leadoff hitter. Um, just... I think really found something to kind of get himself back on track. I don't know that he's ever going to be that guy again, but if you can get enough offensively to back up that Corbin Burns led staff and man, Darren Williams has just been so good with long hater and that bullpen. I mean, we talk about the Mets bullpen, not getting enough credit. I mean, we know how good these guys in Milwaukee are. And if you can see them firsthand. Yeah. And if you can just be good enough to get to those guys in the back end, it's, it's lights out whoever they're playing. And uh, the Cardinals, man, a stretch of 14 straight games against teams with winning records. That Obviously, as you mentioned, continues with the Braves on mm-hmm. three games starting Monday. Then they've got the Phillies well, and Dodgers. Games. Four games. Then they've got the Phillies and Dodgers to follow. So this is going to be really interesting what, what the Cardinals can do here in Atlanta because the Brewers, I think, are getting a little bit closer to being that team that they were back in April. They are, and I don't want to just you know, circle Christian Yelich's name and, and really just give the whole show to what in the world happened to this guy. But even <laughs> with the little bit of improvement that he showed, you know, year over year, the on-base percentage is, you know, still sub 350 at this point. Only eight home runs in 77 games. This guy hit 44 home runs in route to finishing as a runner-up for the MVP in 2019. He'd already won the MVP award in 2018. I mean, he seemed to be as surest of a thing of, as a superstar player. The Brewers locked him in. They gave him that big contract. And then he absolutely fell off a cliff beginning in 2020. And, and it came off of having that leg injury, that bizarre leg injury in 2019 that ended his season early. He just has not been the same player in quite some time. Yeah, I mean, he's just completely fallen off. He's still hitting just above league average, but he's just not the guy that was rolling off no. those 167, 174 WRC plus seasons back in his heyday, you know, was challenging for eight war seasons. At his height, I mean, I will say, though, it has to suck to be a Marlins fan to think that you one time had an outfielder <laughs> that had Ozuna, Yelich, and Stanton in it, and now you see, yeah. you know, it's, it well, at this point, they're probably not feeling quite well, as bad yeah. as they were on the days when they traded him away, and they probably aren't feeling as bad about that uh, Marcelo Zuna trade in particular yeah. because you got Sandy Alcantara in it. You got Zach Gallon in it. You turned him into Jazz Chisholm. So if there is a trickle-down effect that is a net positive because the Stanton trade didn't really net you much. The Ellis trade probably netted you even less because you weren't even offloading a $300 million contract at that point. To get so little for three guys of that stature, say coming out of, what, 2017? Yeah. Um, that, I think, is always going to be something that's going to haunt the Miami club for as long as they roam this earth. And you know they're a team that's still wandering and trying to find its way in the National League East standings, but at 12 games, no, 13 games under 500 at this point. 
and not really looking like a big factor in the wild card either. Let's go out west. We saw the Los Angeles Dodgers, and heck, we spent so much time talking about the Los Angeles Dodgers first baseman. I hate to open up this, you know, this this Pandora's box yet again, but we saw and have, have learned and. The last seven days, Freddie Freeman has released his agency. There has been some bitter back and forth. There's been name-calling. There's been finger-pointing. There's been all kinds of things going on with this. In the meantime, Freddie Freeman just keeps on hitting. That's a good thing. And that's what the Dodgers are paying him for. Hopefully that weekend was what he needed to maybe figure out what he needed to do to close the chapter and start focusing on the here and now. And the here and now for the Dodgers is – the best record in the National League, and that is what you always expect to happen for the Los Angeles Dodgers. They had a big series over the Padres. They were looking to sweep them away, weren't able to do it on Sunday, but they put some significant ground, have the Dodgers between themselves and the Padres, and also pushing the Giants a little bit further back as well, and the Giants dealt another injury blow this week. Yeah, we've all been through those breakups, right, where you get information later on, and it, it yeah. kind of brings up all those old feelings again. But, man, the, the Dodgers and Freddie Freeman in particular, you think about Mookie Betts being on the injured list. He's on his way back. He's just been a steady force for them, um, recorded. you know, he's, he's had two or more hits in eight of his last 15 games. Uh, the Dodgers won six of the last seven against the Padres this season, 14 of 16 dating back to last season. They just absolutely owned that rivalry. And, and you look at that, that's a five-game swing in yeah. the divisional standings. The Padres are three and a half back of the Dodgers well you lose six out of seven against them head to head that has given the Dodgers the advantage that they need and LA doesn't like to lose series to other teams either Tony Gonsolin has been unbelievable he's now 10-0 with the win Friday against the Padres allowed one run eight hits over a career best seven two thirds leads all qualified starters with a 154 ERA you mentioned Max Freed is it maybe he's in the mix for that opening that started in the all-star game uh, Gonsolin, just a seventh pitcher since 1961 to begin a season 10-0 with a sub-200 ERA. I think the hometown boy. I think we're going to see cat socks at the All-Star game for sure. Yeah, well, I don't know if he'll be wearing those or the cat spikes or any yeah. of the other stuff. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. Maybe he'll get some fashion sense between now and then. I'm not really <laughs> sure. But it, it is kind of a hard sell to use anybody else as the starter of that game, in particular not just because, well, hey, it's his ballpark, but, hey, he's put up some numbers that really nobody else is putting up. And as you pointed out, if it's been decades since the last time that somebody accomplished a thing, that usually is letting you know that they've done pretty well, as long as it's a, a good thing, I guess, and not a thing that involves like a very long slump that has really derailed your season. But that's been the opposite of what's been going on for Gonsolin. And, you know, he'll have a couple of more tune-ups to figure out, perhaps, if he's going to be that all-star starter, and we'll find out uh, when the game comes along in a couple of weeks. Looking at the National League wild card, I mentioned that the Braves are at the top of the wild card standings, are right there with the San Diego Padres at this point. Uh, Padres have a half-game lead on the Braves. St. Louis Cardinals right behind them. Then you have two-and-a-half games back, both the Phillies and the San Francisco Giants trying to work their way into the all, uh, excuse me, into the wild-card mix here as we approach the All-Star break. The Marlins are right there in the mix, right? But they've got Jorge Soler and Jazz Chisholm Jr. both on the, the I.L. They're both expected back in the next week or so. Um, they got Billy Hamilton, by the way, is, is, is been activated from Triple H Jackson. Former Braves. Former Brave. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, obviously giving them some experience. They've dominated the Nationals. They are 10 and 2 against them this season, winning all, all, you know, five of the six matchups in D.C. It's the first time they've won 10 or more against the Nationals since 2011. So, can this team with Sandy Alcantara, who is your June pitcher of the month in the National? League. Pablo Lopez has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. Can they do enough to kind of just push their way up? Do they get past the Phillies? The Giants are now going to be with that without Anthony DiScalfani for the rest of the year. So they've obviously had their own rotational issues. The Marlins may just have enough that they can make this thing interesting. Will they be buyers at some point? And if they are buyers, how much are they willing to part with for a club that is still very much trying to work its way through that rebuild? 
They've won four in a row. And you know that old saying that I have about how a team may not win the division, but they may keep somebody else from doing it? Well, the Nationals aren't going to win the division, but they might help somebody else make some serious headway in it because that's what they've done head-to-head against the Marlins. We'll come back here on From the Diamond, and we will go around the American League as we continue our trek around the big leagues. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And welcome back to From the Diamond, Grant McCauley. Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. We've gotten you caught up on this week in Braves baseball. We've also taken a look at what's happening across the National League. So now it's time to spend a little bit of time with the junior circuit, the American League. And we'll start, where else, but in the... AL East, where it's the New York Yankees that you find sitting atop that division. How many games this week, Corey, do you ask? Do they lead the division by? Well, I'm glad that you almost sort of kind of (laughs) asked, but really didn't because it's almost rhetorical. But 13 and a half games over the Boston Red Sox as we sit here recording the show. 14 over the Blue Jays, 14 and a half over the Tampa Bay Rays. Now that all matters in the wild card race, but in the American League East and the pantheon of things that need to happen for another club to win this division – I'm just not sure there's enough time left for the Yankees to fall down several flights of stairs and allow somebody else to find their way to the top. They lost Sunday to the Guardians. They are 6-1 in in the last seven games after a defeat, having dropped consecutive contests just four times this season, the fewest in the majors. So they're going to have the – we're cut out for them a little bit on Monday. But I will say Matt Carpenter, uh, just think about this. Two months ago, he was in AAA Round Rock with the Rangers – Eyeing an, uh, you know, an upcoming out of uh, date major league deal. Uh, likes to say he went from living from uh, couch to playing to uh, baseball's <laughs> best team. 36 years old. Uh, he's a ridiculous 260 WRC plus in 19 games, a 1300 OPS, eight home runs, and just over 50 plate appearances. Went Traveled the country this past winter to rework his swing, worked with the likes of Matt Holliday. Uh, just what a ridiculous story. Just uh, that. Matt Carpenter's been amongst a team that's got a lot of uh, fantastic stories on it. It's got a lot of firepower, none bigger than Aaron Judge, yeah. both literally and figuratively. I guess Giancarlo Stanton gives him a little bit of a run for his money, and there's no pun meant whatsoever there because Giancarlo's already gotten all the money he needs. George Judge is looking for a big contract, much like Mr. Stanton's. But it is interesting to look at if there has been a disappointment on the New York club, the Joey Gallo has been that guy. You yeah. talk about another yeah. big hitter, both literally and figuratively, who was supposed to be an impact player when picked up from the deadline last year with the Texas Rangers in that trade. He came over to New York and did not really find it to his liking as far as production is concerned. If it was possible for it to get worse for Joey Gallo, it has in his first full season with the Yankees. He's got an OPS just over 600. The power's really not there. The walks, the strikeouts, those are all big things, but he has just not been an answer for this club. And while Josh Donaldson's playing some pretty good defense for him and has been healthy more times than not for the Yankees this year, he has an OPS. It's 700 or below. So that's a couple of big holes that the Yankees have that they're trying to run out there every day. You wouldn't think that with a club that has this kind of record. No, and, and Gallo's always been that really the three true outcomes guy, right? And you think about poster this area. Child. I mean, he's been, yeah, absolutely, a poster child. But this year, he's striking out almost 40% of the time. He's got the walks at nearly 14%. But he's homered just nine times. Remember, he homered 38 times 
a year ago. He's hitting 20% below league average right now, been a negative war player. So if the Yankees are going to do anything at the deadline, I think they potentially could go out and maybe make an adjustment in that bullpen. David Robertson from the Cubs is a guy that a former Yankee that there's been talk that maybe he could wind up back in pinstripes. Yeah. I think they're going to be shopping for someone to help out that outfield because I mean, maybe they end up giving, you know, getting somebody to eat some of the money on Gallo and they can, they can get someone to take that contract off their books and, and give them a little bit more firepower. But man, he's been, he, this is not the guy that was roaming things in rain with the Rangers. And Aaron Hicks has also not been very good. Yeah. So even some of the, you know, in-house options and Miguel Andujar, at, at least within the last couple of weeks, I thought had requested a trade yeah. away from the Yankees, but they had to go to him as a 27th man, I think in their double header over the weekend. And he immediately came in and came up with a big hit for the Yankees. And you know, the, the Guardians were able to avoid a sweep at the hands of New York with some good pitching from uh, Tristan McKenzie in the finale. But this has not been a, a banner year for the Yankees in terms of what they were hoping to get from Joey Gallo. As far as everything else is concerned, more than not, you're just going to look at that record and say, all right, well, we'll fix the problems as they come along. And, and they're going to have the ability to do that around the trade deadline. And I think they're going to be busy as well. Josh Donaldson, meanwhile, only six home runs for him this year. That's really not the kind of power impact they were hoping to get at the hot corner from Donaldson, who's hitting about league average, as you mentioned. But one of the things that I look at with Joey Gallo, not to get off on a complete tangent here, but, you know, the on-base percentage is carried by the walks. Much of his value is carried by the walks. And a lot of folks will look at it and say, well, his on-base percentage. I get it. I've seen Moneyball. I also understood the concept before that romantic comedy came out about baseball. However, a walk is is not always as good as a hit in situational hitting and the ability to be a power bat and an impact player like Joey Gallo. Yeah. I'm not saying he needs to stop walking, but I am saying he probably needs to come up with some impactful hits in some of these plate appearances and at bats. Just all the numbers for him are just, you know, it's just, he's a shell of the player that he was when he was in Texas. I think that's, that's, Paramount, right? That's the biggest thing mm-hmm. that he's dealing with right now. You mentioned the OBP is down 70 points yeah. year over year right now. I mean, he's just on a team with few flaws and few blemishes. Uh, he just really sticks out like an extremely big zit right now. Yeah, he certainly does. And the Yankees uh, have eyes on going to the prom. And by that, I mean the World Series. So they're not looking to be dealing with any zits or any breakouts whatsoever on their way to that. Now, in the American League Central, the Twins and Guardians continue their clash atop this division. Minnesota taking two out of three from Baltimore. Cleveland, though, dropped that series to the Yankees, as I mentioned. The Twins are going to get the White Sox. Guardians get the Tigers to start the week. White Sox playing some pretty good baseball out on the West Coast. And clearly, if you're the Detroit Tigers, I mean, you're, you're looking for anything you can, I guess, to, uh, to interest people in your baseball game. Uh, we talked about this before the show. I don't usually do this where I say, hey, you know, before we got on here, we were talking about X, Y, or Z, but this broadcast – you got to tell folks about it because um, they couldn't tell it about it. Or they can't tell you about it themselves. That's right. So they had the early game on Peacock today at 11:30 start. They decided to go with no announcers for a game against the Royals. Now I don't know if this is because you're talking about two teams that are having the season that they're having, and you think, you know what? Maybe we don't want to pay announcers to sit in the broadcast booth. They did use yeah. sideline reporters, but they went with it was the ambient sounds of baseball, which is how they sold it. So it, it was. Absolutely bizarre. Yeah, tune in to From the Diamond next week when uh, Garrett takes us in and out of commercials and we don't say anything for the entirety <laughs> of every segment, apparently. So uh, be that as it may, that is actually in an alternate universe. That's not going to happen. We're going to talk more about baseball than you could possibly want in the case of some folks. But be that as it may, a very interesting uh, way to uh, you know enjoy a baseball game, I guess, if it can be enjoyed between those two teams. But uh, obviously, as you look at the bottom of the standings in the Central, you find the Detroit Tigers just ahead of the Kansas City Royals. I mean, for the White Sox, meanwhile, 
Uh, they're finally knocking on the door of 500, which is the place that you start as you're making your climb towards winning. They're not out of this by a long shot. They're four and a half games back. They have a very long season left to play with the Twins and the Guardians both in shouting distance, to use that phrase again. I don't know. I mean, sooner or later, you figured that the White Sox are too talented to keep playing as poorly as they have the first three months of the year. Well, I mean, Tony La Russa did tell them don't run hard to first base, right? Like, we're going to see guys, you know, he was talking Well, he's about, a Hall of Famer baseball well, he, guy. He is. You know, he, Jose Abreu, Tim Anderson, Luis Robert, A.J. Pollock, Andrew Vaughn, he does not want them running hard to first base because they're all dealing with you know with injuries. He thinks the fans will understand it. But uh, two game, uh, two three game winning streak since May 9th. They have not been able to find their footing. They did pile things up on the Giants uh, Sunday in that season finale. Ten of their next thirteen are against the teams ahead of them in the AL Central and the Twins and the Guardians. If they're going to make up ground, this is it. This is it. And Dylan yep. Cease is coming off of just an insane month for him, the AL Pitcher of the Month. Uh, the opportunity is here for the White Sox. They've been kind of just sitting there in, in quasi-neutral. It's time to make a move. Yeah, and they're going to have to do it soon. As you mentioned, these are the games that you want. If you're moving towards the All-Star break and trying to, to decide, as most clubs are, you know, where are we? And, and in some cases, what are we? And, and that lets you know, do we need to be doing any buying or do we need to just hold and hope that we've got enough to do this thing? Or are you going to be a club that's going to be a seller because you don't feel like you can climb in the wild card standings, which, as I mentioned earlier, and particularly in the American League, because of the Yankees running away and hiding with the East, you have three very competitive clubs behind them that are going to be sitting in wild card spots or contention because you got the Red Sox, the Blue Jays, and the Rays all in some order. And by the way, I mean, they're not that close to it, but the Baltimore Orioles have been a little better this year than most people thought or would give them credit for. It's a long shot for them, but they are playing a little bit better brand of baseball. The same cannot really be said for what's happening out in the West where the Houston Astros, talking about going away and hiding with the division, 13-and-a-half game lead over both the Mariners and the Rangers. Angels just continue to plummet. They've lost three in a row, six out of ten. Uh, they've got a benches-clearing thing going on, a blood feud of some sort with the Seattle Mariners. We'll see if that boils over again at some point this year. And then you got the Oakland Athletics buried 26-and-a-half games out of first place in the West. And it all seemed like two streaks in, in this season, more than anything, have defined this division. Houston going on an 11-game winning streak, and the Angels going on a 14-game bender that sent them from first place down into fourth place. And, you know, if they work really hard, maybe they can catch up with the athletics, but I don't think that's the kind of work they want. So Houston has Jake Odorizzi just completed two rehab starts. He could be joining the team back uh, this week. Uh, Dusty Baker has talked about, I know you hate this, the potential of a six-man rotation. Christian Javier, they, they, uh, he's been fantastic of late. Yeah. So I think there's the real potential that they have a six-man rotation. I don't know how that's going to impact Justin Verlander, who they still, I think, want to make sure he makes his start every fifth mm-hmm. day. Uh, but I think that's going to be a thing to watch. Also, by the way, the Rangers, they're having Corey Seager Shark Week bobblehead coming up. So make sure you mark your counters. It's him in shorts surfing on a shark. So make sure you get your hands on that. Wow. I have seen a lot of creative bobbleheads, and I have not even begun to think of one that's involved a shark at any point in any of the ones that I have seen. So I will look on eBay, I guess, because I'm probably not going to make it out to that game. And, you know, as you look at this West Division race, I mean, it's just one that the Astros are really, you know, sitting exactly where they want to be and really where you'd expect them to be. Because a lot of these other clubs, it was going to be a great story if they were able to give the Astros a run for their money, particularly the Mariners, who've been a very disappointing team for most of this year for a variety of reasons. Same thing with the Rangers. They went out, they spent a whole bunch of money, and, you know, it's gotten them back into it a little bit, but the Astros have just been so good. 
as far as a six-man rotation is concerned, I don't necessarily always – I don't hate it being used, but it never lasts. I mean, you might get two, three, four turns through the rotation, and at some point you always go back to the fifth, the five-man rotation because, you know, you'll have off days. You'll have time in which it just doesn't make sense to be pushing people back. Maybe you save a start or two. Maybe you give a couple of extra days here or there. It just never – it's not something where somebody comes on an opening day and says, these are our six starters – it just doesn't happen that way. And I think unless or until somebody does that and really rides it out for the course of a season, it'll just always be something where it's meant to fix or alleviate some stress on your rotation for a certain amount of time, for a limited time only. When you start dealing with arbitration numbers and guys' numbers start, they start like making, you know, and, and guys have incentive-based contracts that they're not going to get. That's going to be an issue. The Mariners, though, in this division, uh, we not mentioned this, Carlos Santana getting him from the Royals. This was the first notable trade. They've won 10 of the last 13 games. Somebody might have gotten lit up a little bit by that, and I obviously pun intended there, mm-hmm. that brawl they had with the mm-hmm. Angels. This might have been the spark that the Mariners needed to start turning things around. Well, and sometimes it is a small trade or maybe just not a blockbuster trade that starts to turn around your team a little bit or just ignite them in the way that you were saying. I mean, we just talked about not long ago the effect that Jock Peterson had on the Atlanta Braves. It wasn't that Peterson came over and played like an MVP for the rest of the year. He had some big plays and big moments, but it was what he brought in with him and the fact that the Braves got a very simple message sent to them by their general manager, which is, hey, we lost a star player, but we're going to go get reinforcements, and that's what they've done. Yeah, I, I know that Santana has not been good in KC. I mean, he inked a two-year, $17 million contract before 2021. He's been a you know below-league average hitter since then. But this is a Mariners team that's been trying to find some consistency offensively. Jesse Winkler, who they you know went out and got. Juanio Suarez has not been great. They've, they've not played to the deals they did in Cincinnati. But um, this is a team that invested so much. And they've got a you know, guy who's having a... a Unbelievable season, Julio Rodriguez, uh, the AL Rookie of the Month, the guy who looks like the front runner for AL Rookie of the Year. Uh, they've they've got put a lot into this team. I think it's it's I mean it's got to be uplifting in that clubhouse to see them go out and make a move, and then you go yeah. on a run like this. Yeah, and I, I mean you're you're making a move to hopefully just say hey we're going to keep trying here. Yep. I mean as you mentioned, Carlos Santana not particularly making a huge impact with the Mariners, but they needed to do something. I mean they went out and got Justin Upton as you said, who'd yeah. been cut loose by the. Angels, and that just that's a sunk cost for Anaheim, and that's just kind of where they've been with a lot of the moves that they've made, unfortunately. Uh, again, looking in this wild card for the American League, it's the Boston Red Sox that have the top wild card spot just ahead of the Blue Jays and then the Tampa Bay Rays. Then after that, the second-place Guardians and then the White Sox are four games out. Seattle just five games back. But again, we talk about the math that's involved with the wild card. It's not just trying to get across the one or two teams in front of you. It's now trying to climb across six or seven teams and get to the goal line before somebody else does. And that's just something that the math is not in your favor. I think all of the American League East teams are just trying to avoid the Yankees, right? If all three of them look like wildcard teams, they just want a jockey. Let's just not face the Yankees. And, and that's the thing, though, when you really think about it. If you can just get into the postseason, the Yankees will lose the series this year at yep. some point. If they haven't already, I haven't gone inside the numbers that much. Their record just tells me they haven't done it very often. But we'll see. Stranger things have happened than the winningest team in baseball getting knocked out of the postseason. It happened to the Giants just last year. So we'll see how that all plays. That's what's going on in the American League. When we come back, we will wrap up this edition of From the Diamond as we look at what's ahead this coming week for the Braves, who are home against the Cardinals for the 4th of July. We'll tell you all about that. Get you primed for that series and that homestand right here on From the Diamond. With Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. 
with From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. We appreciate you making us part of your Sunday evening. We hope you make us part of your baseball podcast regimen. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, also on the Odyssey app. And now we will turn our attention back in full to what's going on with the Atlanta Braves. Again, a disappointing closing game, a finale, some call it, in Cincinnati, as the Braves did take two out of three, but they were this close, this close to a a sweep of that series. Would have been nice, but a 4-2 and two road trip, Corey, is what they come home from. And now they're going to be home for the next seven games. They've got four against the St. Louis Cardinals. And as we talked about a little bit earlier when we were looking at the National League as a whole, this is a pivotal series for both of these teams as they are both within striking distance of the top of the division. The Braves three and a half games out. The Cardinals one and a half games out in the Central. This is going to be a pretty fascinating matchup between two clubs that definitely have eyes on October and a deep run through the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, Paul Goldschmidt has been you know, every bit uh, looking like the NL MVP to this yeah. point. So and I think he's, yeah, he's going to be a handful. Uh, certainly Nolan Arenado, you know, mentioned him having hit for the cycle on Friday and then on Saturday, you know, one of those four first inning home runs by the Cardinals, the first time a team's ever done that in the first inning. So this team, not only do they have firepower, and then you look at what they have pitching-wise, Miles Michaelis has been really, really good, looking like an all-star, a 2-6-1 ERA. Um, you know, he's going to get a start uh, as the series goes on on Wednesday, but on Monday you're going to have Dakota Hudson going against Kyle Wright. Kyle Wright has never faced the Cardinals before. Uh, then Andre uh, Andre Pallante on Wednesday against Ian Anderson. Uh, Michaels will go against Max Fried, and then this is being a four-game series. You get Matthew Liberatore against Spencer Strider uh, in Thursday's finale. So, that, you know, we, these teams have history. You know, uh, Mike Fultonevich will not be a, a part of this. Uh, we know, obviously, you know, the— No, unless he buys a ticket. Well, there you go. Uh, but certainly, offensively, this Cardinals team is a handful. Uh, Tommy Edmond has been really, really good. Uh, and then certainly, you know, we mentioned uh, what Goldschmidt and Arenado have done. So this is this is going to be a, a handful offensively for the Braves, and they, they're coming in with some pretty good starting pitching. Well, let's start with looking at the opener of the series. You mentioned the pitching matchups and the fact that the Braves are going to go with Kyle Wright in that opener. Ian Anderson is slated for Tuesday. We talked about this earlier here on From the Diamond, and the, I think the question starts to become at this point, with Ian Anderson's inconsistency and really his struggles at this point, we can't just point to it and say, well, it was a little bit inconsistent. Some days that's true. Other days it's just been an absolute uphill battle for him. His start the last time out against the Dodgers, I know that there was a little bit of a, you know, emotional air about the ballpark in Freddie Freeman's return. There was that standing ovation the Braves or the Braves fans were giving him, and the Braves obviously they initiated that by giving him time to step up to the plate. And, and all of that, but that can't be the sole reason why Ian Anderson wasn't able to find himself on that day. I know there was a lot going on, but then if that was the case, you go out to Philadelphia, and it's an even worse start the last time out. Two innings, seven earned runs, was getting hit, and hit pretty regularly, and as it happened with Nick Castellanos, he got hit hard with a three-run homer that turned it into a seven-run second inning. That kind of thing you want to bounce back from big time, but I, again, asked this question, and we talked about it earlier, but yeah, how many more of these starts can you give a pitcher when you are in the middle of a divisional race or a pennant race and they're trying to figure something out and you are also trying to win because an ERA approaching seven in his last eight starts is not exactly what the club needs as a foundation for trying to win every fifth day. Well, I mentioned the handful that the Cardinals are going to be offensively, right? But if you look at the next two starts after that, he's, he'll, he would be penciled in to face the Nationals on July 10th, mm-hmm. and then he would get the Nationals again in that four-game set to end, right before the All-Star break. 
a bottom five offense in, in Washington. So, so if he is effective against the Cardinals or, you know, close to, you know, gives the team you a chance to more. win, he'll earn more. And then you get a real opportunity there to kind of build on things against what's not been a very good Nationals offense. So, you know, while, yeah, you know, you look at the, the last month or so and think, okay, maybe it's time to start thinking about something else. And I'm not saying that that's not, you know, the overall narrative with Ian Anderson right now. I think the two starts after this one set themselves up to be opportunities for him to look more like the Ian Anderson that we've come to expect. Yeah, 68 base runners, hits and walks anyway, in 40 and a third innings over those last eight starts. That's since May the 22nd. It really felt like he was maybe starting to figure something out against the Cubs. At the very least, I think you could have said he was effectively wild and was able to keep that offense from you know, really getting comfortable against him. The last couple of starts, though, the Dodgers were quite comfortable as they are against a lot of clubs. And then the Phillies really made him pay uh, just in the strike zone, really, and on fastballs, as you mentioned earlier. So Ian Anderson's a game two starter. He will be lined up to face Andrew Pallante, as you mentioned. Miles Michaelis and Max Fried is game three. That's a Wednesday night affair. And then in that finale, you got Matthew Liberatore against Spencer Strider, a couple of young pitchers. But, you know, Spencer Strider has been generating an awful lot of excitement for the Braves. He did it again over the weekend, dominating Cincinnati. And now he's going to get another test against another NL Central foe. A couple of other things that are happening down on the farm. I talked about Ian Anderson, you know, having these struggles. Uh, and you've got Kyle Muller pitching extremely well, but there's some rehab assignments to be keeping an eye on and some roster moves that the Braves have made over this past week. They traded for Silvino Bracco. He's now in their bullpen for how long? We'll see, but uh, made his Braves debut over the weekend in Cincinnati. Braves also activated Jay Jackson from the injured list where he had been all season long, the 60-day IL, and the corresponding move for that was designating Tuki Toussaint for assignment. So that, you know, it might be the end of his time in Atlanta. He's a talented arm. Some club out there might want to take a flyer on him. I really felt like if there was a time... To get something out of him, it might be time to look at him as a bullpen arm with a 97-mile-an-hour fastball and a really, really dynamite splitter and a curveball that I still think is one of the best in the Braves system, or at least it was in, until this most recent news. And then you got some rehab assignments that are going on. Tyler Matzik's made two appearances for Gwinnett. You hope to have him back soon in this bullpen, which, as we've discussed on the show and as Braves fans saw over the weekend, could get a little dicey like it did on Sunday without him and without Kenley Jansen, who's on the 15-day injured list with an irregular heartbeat. You've also got Eddie Rosario down on a rehab assignment. I say all of this to say we've had that long list of Braves you know, needs and players that could come in and help out. A couple of these guys seem to be getting a little bit closer to coming in and helping out the Braves in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, and I think Matzik's obviously the big one, right? I mean, you think about you know what you potentially could have in this bullpen because we, we spent a lot of time before the season started when they're getting Colin McHugh and they're getting Kelly Jansen going – Wow, man! What a bullpen! You know, this bullpen's going to be insane. And then you lose Luke Jackson to Tommy John surgery, and then you, you know, on and on. And now you've got you're without Kenley Jansen, and um, and and then obviously Matzik going to the IL has still has a chance to be an extremely good bullpen on the Tuki Toussaint front. I, I, you know, hasn't pitched for the Braves uh, since 2021 when he pitched in 11 games. I say I hope Tukey finds another opportunity because that splitter is a thing of beauty. Thirty yep. percent whiff rate, one ninety six average against last time we saw it. Um, you know, again, here's hoping that he resurfaces. I think down the line we're going to see someone. His name's going to pop up, and you're going to say, "Man, somebody turned that guy into a weapon." Yeah, and and again, it may not be as a starting pitcher. And I don't know how much time we really need to spend on it at this yeah. point. We spent a lot of time on it. You and I talking to Tukey, who's an A plus human, an eighty grade human being, and I hope he does find a great opportunity, whether it's you know staying in the Braves organization or going off somewhere else. But off the forty man roster, because every once in a while, once you've been getting a little bit long in the tooth as a prospect, or really even losing your prospect status because you've been up and down so many times that. You know, at some point, somebody's got to make a decision and a need might outweigh the potential of the future. And it seems to be the way that things trended uh, for Tuki Toussaint. And, 
you know, as far as the other things that are happening in the minor leagues for the Braves, I mean, we mentioned the Ian Anderson struggles and we mentioned Kyle Muller pitching extremely well. And it kind of reminds you a little bit reminiscent of, you know, Kyle Wright found it in Gwinnett last year. He didn't come up until late in the season. He didn't get a long look at it. But I feel like, and this is just based on what I saw in 2021 and what he's doing down in AAA, that there's a lot more of the story for Kyle Muller to be involved in than he has been involved in to this point. The question about Mike Soroka arriving at some point in the second half is still out there, but you know, in the short term, this is a guy I think that could be a bit of an impact player if, in fact, you want to put him out there. Well, think about how Kyle Wright. You know, I, I know people, you know, go back to this being the moment for him and talking to him. He says it, it wasn't; it was a combination of things, but it was that relief role in the postseason and when we saw him step in, uh, you know, in the World Series and, and just perform at the highest level and eat up innings when the Braves needed them needed him to eat up innings. That was the real turning point in a lot of people's eyes. Where is that opportunity exists for Kyle Muller? Because if if you, if you stick with Ian Anderson in this rotation, if you add Mike Soroka to this rotation, the bullpen gets that much stronger, you know, with, with Kenley Jansen obviously not taking Kenley's role, but, you know, everyone kind of cycles back a spot when Kenley's there, and then you, you bring Tyler Matzik in. Where is there a chance for Kyle Muller to, to find that outside of, you know, somebody either getting demoted or somebody getting injured? Where does well, that opportunity exist? That's, that's where it is, though, yeah. I think, is if you do decide to make a change, just based on the timing of the performance, both the good that is happening at that level and the promise of what I feel like you saw in flashes at the very least in the at the big league level last year. I mean, I was surprised that we did not see more Kyle Muller again at some point last year. Now, he didn't go down to Gwinnett and light the world on fire and pitch in, in quite the same way that Kyle Wright did, but I did feel like, you know, this was a big arm, and he had a nice little run of six, seven starts. It felt like to start to establish himself, but it's going to be that, you know, every fifth day, second time seeing a team, all those kinds of things. I mean, and, and as we've heard that old adage of it takes you 30, 35 starts to really kind of find your bearings as a major league starting pitcher. Well, he hasn't even come close to approaching that yet. But, yeah, it's a numbers game, and there's a lot of that. And I don't want to spend, you know, the whole rest of the show talking about, you know, will this move happen, will it not happen? But it's just worth looking into the fact that there is a possibility because a lot of times when somebody struggles, there is no answer on the farm. There's nobody that's quite ready. Maybe go out there and pick up somebody off the scrap heap and try to put them in there. I don't feel like the Braves are at that point where they have to go out and grab somebody that gets cut loose by another team that might be sitting there with a disappointing season of their own. Well, I will say that they've the Braves have trended away from using younger guys in that long relief for a lot of the bullpen. There wasn't that long ago on Tuki Toussaint that we were, we were he was one of the guys that they would look at, you know, occasionally to come out and, and eat up innings if need be when things didn't go right for a starter. They transitioned towards Josh Tomlin. Now you see Jesse Chavez being mm-hmm. that guy. I mean, that's a chance for a guy like Kyle Muller to go in and get those meaningful, impactful innings and figure things out at the major league level. But if you're going to go with that veteran presence in that that role, it, to me, it just it limits how much you can develop guys at the major league level unless you're willing to roll them out there as starters. Yeah, and that becomes the question is, like, can you afford to develop guys when you're also trying to win? And the Braves have kind of straddled that line for quite a while. You look at this homestand, though, moving beyond that, of course, moving beyond what's happening with the Cardinals for four games beginning on the 4th of July, you get the Washington Nationals sandwiched in between your first meeting with the New York Mets in quite some time since early in the season when these two teams split a four-game series thanks to a doubleheader that was thrown in there as well. You know, this is, I think, where the rubber meets the road for the Braves. I mean, you got the Nationals on the other side of that for a four-game road series before you get to the All-Star break. So there is seven against Washington, as you've laid out, but there's also this big four-game series and then an even bigger three-game series for the Braves. It's a 
a very exciting time for all the work that the Braves did in June to climb back into this division. Now the things that they want are right out there in front of them. I mentioned this is a bad Nationals offense, and that's not you know news, breaking news to anybody uh, listening right now. I mean, they've been bottom five for most of the season, but Josh Bell is just having a, a really productive season on a one-year $10 million contract. He's been the most productive hitter in the Nationals lineup because Juan Soto has not been Juan Soto this season. Uh, Bell is at 148 uh, weighted run created plus, a 2-2 war player. I think when you look at trade chips on that Nationals team, he is at the forefront, and I think you know right before the the deadline and before the All Star break, look for Josh Bell to try to make some noise in these series. Yeah, he certainly could, and that could be really an audition for him to be of interest to another club, and particularly with the DH being across the board, a club doesn't have to worry about hey, where am I going to play him? Yeah, he might be enough to upgrade your DH spot, and that's something that the Nationals I would think might be trying to cash in on a little bit because it's not a very expensive. You're not trying to dump a contract on somebody either. You mentioned you know, Juan Soto, and I know the Braves aren't going to see the Nationals until after they play the Cardinals, but if you told me that Juan Soto was going to play just about every day and be hitting two twenty six at the All-Star break with 33 runs knocked in, I would have really wondered what in the world happened to him. He is leading the National League in walks, but otherwise he has not looked anything like the Juan Soto that we had come to expect over the first four years, and I don't know. It's something that everybody goes through it for a period of time. And right now, for Juan Soto, he is going through it. So he still is at 132 way to run creative plus. If he was on the Braves, he would be just behind Dansby Swanson and Austin Riley, which would still be really nice to have, right? I mean, oh, it, he's, well, for just, sure. he's just he's just not been that guy that you that you look at him and go, that's the best hitter I've seen since Ted Williams. I mean, he's not that guy right now. And it's interesting that he's going through this time period where, you know, Josh Bell's been good, but where things have kind of broken down around this club around him. There's talk of what the contract potentially mm-hmm. could look like for him. Yeah. Is he interested in talking to them about, you know, getting that out of the way now? Uh, you know, I, it's just all kind of swirling around him. I think you're seeing for the first time in his career, Juan Soto have to deal with frustration and setbacks, and it's not going as well as planned. Yeah, if you play long enough, though, you are going to find your way to it, and hopefully you'll find your way through it. So, Braves have got four games against the St. Louis Cardinals. It all starts on Monday night at Truist Park. It's going to be four night games, and it will be on the mound. Kyle Wright for the Braves to start it out. Ian Anderson, Max Fried, and Spencer Strider also penciled in to pitch for the Braves in this series. And three and a half games behind the Mets, as we said, everything is right out in front of them as far as the Braves trying to chase down New York because once they get done with the Cardinals, they get the Mets for those three games. That's going to wrap things up for this week's show. As always, we appreciate you joining us here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Also, find From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. Corey, as always, it's been a pleasure. Look forward to doing it again next week. All right, everybody out there, enjoy the fourth. All right, appreciate that. Appreciate Garrett Chapman for keeping us on the rails. As always, this is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.